Kevin, how are you tonight, Kevin? Well, I'm uh, raring to go, as always. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Just for some of the viewers that may be coming in uh, that haven't seen you before or maybe just caught the last couple episodes, do you want to give a little bit of a backstory for them um, just to get them up to speed? Well, to make it relevant to tonight, uh, I could say that I'm a seventh-generation uh, citizen of this land. My ancestors came here in the 1820s from England because um, they, they pretty much got chased out of England because they were Baptists. They couldn't practice their religion independently there. So they came to Upper Canada, that's now Ontario, and they got over here and they found out the same problem they had in England was over here. And uh, so I kind of co-hosting today with my great-great-great-grandfather, Philip Annett, who took part in the 1837 rebellion to overthrow the crown. And um, we were raised on the whole knowledge of, of our family's kind of rebel tradition. And I took that into all the work I did. I was a United Church minister. I got tossed out for letting residential school survivors speak from my pulpit, started a whole campaign to expose this crime. And it led inevitably to talking about, well, why should we live under crown authority when uh, it killed so many children and did a lot of other crimes? So that's kind of, in a nutshell, relevant to tonight. And uh, you work in just Canada alone, or do you work other in other countries as well? Well, uh, all over the place now. We're starting in early July. We're setting up a founding convention of people in 12 countries now who want to work on sovereign common law republics, who don't like what's going on with the COVID global police state, and we want to create self-governing assemblies and nations where people can just govern themselves and... Uh, you know, so it's catching on all over the planet, really, this idea. Yeah, it, I, I do believe that this is a time for it to, uh, to to really make traction. I mean, you've been working at it for quite some time. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think if any time, if there wasn't any time for it to, you know, all come to fruition, it would it would very likely be a time like this. Um, for any of our viewers out there that haven't seen the documentary yet, uh, it's called Unrepentant. And I believe it's still up on YouTube. That was where I last watched it. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago, though. But you can go check that out as well if that's something you're interested in. And, um, yeah, let's get into some of the questions that we got for you today, Kevin. We, um, what, caused you to, what caused you and others to launch the Republic of Canada in January 2015? A bunch of reasons, and they all kind of interlock. But at a very practical level, we... Uh, found that as people are experiencing now in spades, uh, we were living under complete tyranny. About a third of the delegates to our founding convention in January 2015 in Winnipeg were indigenous. And they had been battling for years with the fact that they'd never relinquished their sovereignty. And uh, they were trying to get out from under this genocide. They'd killed so many of their children in these death camps they call residential schools. Also, we had conducted a common law court trial in Europe in 2012-2013 that found Queen Elizabeth guilty of crimes against humanity. And under that ruling, as the head of state of Canada, she had no more lawful authority in this country. So at that point, under international law, we need a new jurisdiction. We need a new nation because the old one has been criminally convicted. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of different reasons. But I think a basic thing we all realized was that morally... We shouldn't have to live under this kind of culture anymore, this kind of system that has been committing genocide from the beginning and is now inflicting it on everybody through the COVID police state. 
So, you know, uh, it was a lot of those things coming together, but uh, people felt they needed to do more than mere protest, uh, relying on members of parliament who all take an oath of allegiance to Elizabeth Windsor and nobody else, uh, not even to the people. We realized it was a rigged game, Canadian politics, and we need to go back to our original notion that people can govern themselves, as we tried to do in 1837 and got defeated for that, you know, for now, um, but we're trying again. And there was an opinion poll done in 2014, and 58% of Canadians said they want a republic. They don't want any more ties with the British crown. It's an anachronism to say nothing of the fact that the crown owns everything in Canada, including your home. Um, so why should people have to live under a, a criminally convicted tyranny like that anymore? It's time to kind of come of age and, and govern ourselves, right? Yeah, you, you had mentioned it before. You know, a few times that, you know, by we, you know, by us paying our taxes and, and things like that, we are essentially supporting that system, right? Like the, the crown or the, 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 the corrupt group, whatever we want to call them, like by, because they are part of the government or in that sort of sense and the things that they've done along the way, um, their criminal right. acts by, by doing the things that we're doing and not, um, getting out of it or doing what we have to do to change it, you know, we are essentially complicit. Do I have that right? That's right. Well, that's right. Under international law, if your government is involved in crimes against humanity or is being convicted of them or admitted, like Justin Trudeau did in 2019, he said, yes, it was genocide. Right? And at that point, at that point, he should have been convicted of, you know, there should be a war crimes trial and Trudeau should be put on trial for it. But, um, when a, when a nation admits that or is, is guilty of these crimes, people are obligated not to pay taxes anymore. That's the International uh, Criminal Court in 1998 ruled that. And uh, if you vote for or pay for that government, you're complicit in, in, the, in its crimes. So um, that's at a, at a kind of a basic level. But there's something even more basic, and that is um, there was a study done a few years ago, and they totaled all the wealth in Canada uh, that's, that's created every year and divided it equally among all 33 million of us, we'd each have an income of a quarter of a million dollars a year, 248000 if you divided the wealth. So that's the amount of wealth being pumped out of the country every year. Well, we know where it's going, to offshore yeah. banks, uh, to you know the, the corporatocracy, and why should there be 6 million Canadians in poverty, 1.5 million of them children, when that kind of wealth exists? So that exists because we're not in, in control of our own house. As a matter of fact, Justin Trudeau brought in the Foreign Investment Protection Act, which allows China to station their troops and buy up the country. They've removed all restriction on Chinese investment. So, I mean, it's like it used to be the British and then the Americans. Now it's the Chinese running the country from overseas. Um, you know, that's got to end. And, and so it's really those basic questions of survival, right? Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit, you know, about being complicit. So an option to, you know, not not to do that anymore or something we could do to get away from that um would be a republic um from my understanding and so you know a question for you what is a what is a republic and how would that be different than what we have now you know like principles constitutions things like that for you know for myself and the viewers to get a bit of a, a background on it well we lay it out in this book which you can get at amazon uh, or murderbydecree.com you'll see how to order it it's the case for canada and it kind of lays out a lot of that in there. But in a nutshell, a democracy is when you get to choose who's going to 
what ruler is going to govern you. In a republic, you govern yourself. And that's a real, you know, we're drawn with this idea that democracy means you sign away your authority to somebody else, a representative. And so you got to look at the words, represent, you know, like in a court, a lawyer represents your case. They're speaking and acting for you with your authority. That's not what a republic is. You govern yourself. An election should be like a contract. You know, you, you elect somebody, okay, you're going to go, we delegate you to speak and act on these issues. But if you don't, we can remove you at any point. It's like a contract. If you renege on one part of the contract, we, we nullify it. That's not how it works now. That's not how it works now at all. It, you basically send away authority to be ruled over for four or five years. So for like one second, when you mark your ballot, you're momentarily free, and then somebody, another guy is ruling over you. That's not what a republic is. A republic is the opposite, and, and people govern themselves through their own local assemblies. They, they can remove their delegate at any point. Um, you know, you can write up laws in your local assembly. You get to determine the laws you live under rather than have some stranger do it for you. I mean, that's kind of a basic fundamental difference, but there are a lot more details. Like, for example, one of the in the draft constitution of the republic which you can you can see if you go to republicofcanada.org go under a thing that says documents of the republic and you'll see the draft constitution well in there um within the republic voting age is lowered to 16. uh income tax and all debts are cancelled there should be no need to tax income with with the kind of wealth we have in in canada uh we abolish all debts and mortgages we free up the land we get people out from under the, the debt slavery. We abolish all foreign ownership of the economy. Canada is the most heavily foreign-owned economy in the world, It you know, because of its resources. It's just totally owned from overseas. And the super-rich, you know, have an extraordinarily disproportionate amount of the wealth. We say tax those people. You know, abolish with the, with the amount of wealth freed up by that, there wouldn't be any poverty. There wouldn't be any social problems in this country at all. So, I mean, that's a taste. The basic principle is that all wealth and land is owned by the people as a whole. So no special interest group or individual can buy it all up. You can't have a uh, Elon Musk owning billions of dollars where there's 8 million people in poverty. We think there should be a maximum limit on the wealth of the super rich, and that should be distributed equally. Now, that doesn't mean a big super state doing it. We want to get away from the state. We want the local communities to control the economy keep tax money in the community, create local barter and exchange. And, and so people control that wealth locally and delegate it according to what they need, you know, it's spent on. So those are just basic, uh, you know, Republican principles that it, it, it really is, is embodied in the American Constitution. The, the theory of it um, came out of a book called The Social Contract by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And he was kind of like the the... the leading thinker of the French and the American revolutions. And he said, basically, you never surrender sovereignty, okay? Just because you mark a ballot or pay tax, it doesn't mean our sovereignty is surrendered. You can step out of the system whenever you like, and nobody has a right to stop you. So that's really the the basis of what we're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like a, a good thing. I, mean, I got a couple questions on that. With the when it has regards to the the finances of it, you know, there's some people out there that say do have money. Would it, would they be not interested in Republic because of, you know, that factor of, you know, that they could be capped at a certain, certain level, or is it just for like, you know, would it be more so be for the, I guess you call them ultra 
you know, rich oh, yeah. of people that have billions and billions and billions. And I mean, I'm not even sure that they get it themselves. I think there's some other stuff going on behind the scenes there for one person to get that way. Um, yeah. But is it like, would it be, um, I guess, equal across the boards? Like if, if you work hard, you do get, to, you would earn more or is it kind of, cause I mean, oh, yeah. no. in a way it almost sounds like the social, uh, so oh, not social, commun- no, communist, no. Yeah. Well, social, the difference like, is, everyone has in, a flat. In, Right. Okay. So it it's not the state dictating. Let's say in the quote communist system where the state owns everything and dictates everything to people. Um, that's not at all what we're talking about. We're not talking quote capitalism or quote communism. We're talking about a third way, a cooperative economic model. And in the cooperative okay. model, it came out of Western Canada. If you look at the cooperative movement, starting among my family, were involved in it in Alberta. Uh, farmers there and in Manitoba, the farmers all get together and pooled what they had so that they couldn't be ripped off by the banks and the railways, right? Um, when you pool the wealth, people naturally share. This is our understanding. Um, there's no need in a cooperative society where one guy would feel the need compulsively to have all this wealth. I remember there was a great quote by, if you remember Andrew Carnegie, who was this, this multimillionaire in America, right? He owned all these steelworks, the Carnegie Library. They're all endowed. Well, he was a poor Irish kid who made a lot of money in America, and he said, if you die rich, you're a failure because your wealth should be mm-hmm. given back to the community. You know, you should be building libraries and schools. People naturally do that. So people with a lot of money are naturally going to do that. Uh, they don't have to be forced, and we rely on that, right? What has to be forced is when you have a, a, a small group of people who think they own everything, kind of the Bill Gateses of the world and the big farm and that. They've got to be restrained, mm-hmm. and you do that through local self-governance, where they will never get the chance to do that because the people control everything. We need economic as well as political democracy, right? That's kind of a given. Like you wouldn't give somebody 10,000 votes in an election, but you give them $10 billion to buy politicians with. So how can you have a democracy in that that bloated system where a few own most most of it, all the wealth? So we're just trying to redistribute it, but naturally, democratically, in a cooperative manner rather than imposed by a super state or super corporation or, or anything outside the control of the people. Mm-hmm. That makes, that makes more sense. Yeah. Um, one more question on that one before we move on, move on there in that, uh, Oh, maybe it just slipped my mind. No. Um, when, when people are in, you know, in this, in the situation that we're in now, there, there's a certain uh, level of comfort being the, they're having a parent figure. So when it comes to a Republic, right. Do you see that there'd be any hesitancy in people that, you know, they have to be their own maker, essentially? Do you think there'd be hesitancy? I think a lot of, I believe there'd be some people that might be a little bit terrified of that, regardless of whether it's a good thing or not. That's a really good question, because we, we encounter that all the time, Chad. Uh, you know, we, we bring assemblies of people together, and then we say, okay, you can now write laws for your community and talk about how you want to govern your community. What do you see, what do you want to see in your neighborhoods? You have the right now to form laws and then enforce them. People hold back because it's like, I remember I had an example of this when I was a minister in Port Alberni, we got donated two acres of land and we had a big food bank in our church, hundreds of people, mostly native using it every week. And I said to people, okay, here's seeds, here's tools. We got this land, let's grow our own food. People are all excited. And the first week we had about three dozen people out there working on the land. It was great. We, we, we were working the land together. It was beautiful. Second week we had about two dozen. At the end of the month, we had five of us working it, right? Because people, we live in a system of intergenerational dependency and poverty. 
people are used to being getting the welfare check. It's easier to sit in front of their TV and get the check and be dependent. Uh, people are raised in that condition, and a lot of us don't want to be self-governing, right? We prefer that comfortable slavery. So, yeah, we're not, it'll be an uphill battle, but there is a minority of us who are the other way, who believe that the highest virtue and joy is to serve the community, to rise above our simple base apparent needs, and and find that higher commitment and joy in, in the loving service of one another. And when we encourage that with an example, when you lead by example, others will come along, but you can't be held back by that, that majority who will resist this at first. And we find that, it, you know, that's why the assemblies come and go, um, because it's, uh, it's asking people to not only be concerned about their rights, but their responsibilities to one another and to themselves, right? Yeah. That's a, interesting how you said that at the end, the rights and responsibilities. I think that a lot of people, you know, or people in general ought to pay more attention to their responsibilities than their, than their rights. And, and uh, you know, I think a lot of issues in, the, in society would not be the way they are if people looked at their responsibilities and not only, you know, cried about what their rights are. I mean, our rights are important to, to an extent, but it seems like people fall back on that all the time as, I have my rights and it's like, well, you also have responsibilities. So, you know, pull up your socks and go do something about it instead of, you know, whining and complaining. And, you know, from what you're doing here, that's exactly what's, what you're doing is you're, you're moving forward with the Republic with a, with a solution. I guess an easy way to say that would be, you know, um, solution based rather than problem based and, and just shouting about mm-hmm. rights, I think is kind of problem based. Whereas going out there and doing something uh-huh. is a uh, based in solution. Well, that's what we say all the time. You know, I say to people often in workshops we do and everything, when assemblies are forming, I'm saying when you form, it doesn't even matter what you do at first. As long as you try something, start something, even as a community garden, learn together, and then you'll see what needs to be done in your communities. You're your best judges of what you need. But when you think of even the way that our society defines rights, it's always get, getting something like a gift. And that's, in fact, how rights are defined under the present crown system, which is why we have to get rid of it. The Charter of Rights is the old Roman feudal notion that a right is a privilege given to you by a ruler, and they can take them away at any point, like they're doing now, right? Uh, hmm. Oh, you can't gather anymore. You've got to wear this muzzle on your face. You know, because that's the old notion that it's a privilege. It's not born in you, but the Republic notion is my liberties are born in me. You can't take them from me. They only exist when I practice them. But a lot of us don't practice them. We're, we're like a kid waiting to be given a gift. Like, give me a right. Well, it's not a right when it's given to you. It's only a, a right when when you naturally practice it, right? Uh, hmm. Like freedom of speech. I agree with that. Until you, until you do it, right? Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, yeah. And I like the, you know, the the you know practicing it rather than having you know being the the ruler style or the roman style of like you know there's a ruler they say i get this right and so now i get it it's like no i i'm a human and i believe my rights are given right. to me you know from birth or from you know god given rights so to speak so moving moving forward here what is a um a, we went through went through a little bit about what a republic is so i think you kind of alluded to it but has a republic been attempted before in canada and if it was was their consequences or how did it work out? Well, like I said, good old great, great, great grandfather and a lot of other people tried it. Uh, you can read about it. A lot of this has been edited out of the Canadian history books naturally because the Republic attempt back then failed. Um, 
In Upper Canada or Ontario, Lower Canada and Quebec, these patriots tried to overthrow the British crown. It got defeated. And then right after that, they, they brought in what was called the Act of Union. The British crown created Canada. But they said the crown and the church have absolute authority. So uh, they created what's still in effect, the Privy Council, which writes most of the laws in Canada. Do you know three quarters of the laws in this country are never even debated in Parliament? They're just passed mm-hmm. what's called order and council. Order and council. A few bureaucrats and a few judges sit down and write these laws and say, hi, now you've got to take the COVID shot. Well, hello, we didn't debate it. No court, no parliament ever passed the COVID legislation. So why am I obligated to obey it? Just because some stranger tells me to? That's not, that's not right. Um, that's the way Canada's always worked. And it came out of the defeat of that revolution. It's why we had the residential school genocide. Because the Crown said, okay, the Catholic Church has total authority in Quebec. The Anglican Church, total authority in Ontario. You can do whatever you want, including run these death camps and kill children. They were given total control. And I, you know, if you read my book, murderbydecree.com, you'll see letters from Indian agents saying, we know these children are dying en masse, but we can't interfere because the churches are running the school. Right. We can't interfere with the churches. And, you know, we you still find that today when we we're protesting at the churches. People were horrified. Oh, you can't do that at a church. Well, why not? They murder children. They're getting your tax money now to evade prosecution for those killings. Right. So mm-hmm. it's that, that brainwashing that happened to Canadians, that church and, and state cannot be challenged. Because when I started this campaign in the late 90s with our first tribunal, I was literally treated like some kind of traitor or crazy man because I was challenging church and crown now it's more popular because people can see what's going on but back then it's that built-in canadian fear of 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 anyone who challenges authority there's that automatic deference to authority among canadians right um i mean there was a funny incident of that um i experienced this as an anecdote i experienced the same incident in new york city and vancouver somebody was stopped uh jaywalking Okay, he was crossing off on Richard Street. I saw this guy jaywalk, and a policeman pulled him over and ticketed him for jaywalking. And as he was being ticketed, all the crowd were kind of walking around them like, whoa, this man's broken the law. Avoid him, right? I saw the same incident a few years later in Manhattan, okay? And a crowd forms, and they start yelling at the cop. They're saying, leave that young kid alone. What are you doing picking? They take on the cop. And I rarely see that in Canada because, you see, Americans were raised with the idea that you guys are answerable to us. You know, that's we we create the government. You're our paid employee guy, the cop. Whereas in Canada, the, this this authority figure just shouldn't be challenged. And that's the the um, the mindset we're dealing with all the time. But that's beginning to shift. And uh, you got to remind people about their own roots, though. you got to remind them of that. You know, this system was a crime from the beginning, and now we have to overturn it, or rather turn it right side up the way it should have been from the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, I do believe it is turning, and people are getting a bit more of a, a voice and a backbone and seeing that it is a corrupt system, that, it, you know, the, that the the polit- well, politicians are supposed to work for us, right? They're not, we're not supposed to be under their control. So is it, would there be a big difference in how the Republic was attempted last time compared to how it's being attempted this time or how it's being pushed forward this time? Would there be a similarities or differences? Well, the first time, you know, there were kind of two wings. Uh, there was the kind of uh, a guy called William Lyon McKenzie, 
in Upper Canada and Louis-Joseph Papineau in Quebec. They were professional politicians. They tried to bring in legislation giving Canadians more control, kind of decolonizing it, removing the governor general, who still runs the country, by the way. The head of state is the governor general. He can remove the government at any point. Uh, it was that way back in 1837. It's still that way now. So they were saying, you know, let's do the traditional political route, but it didn't work. They, they, every time William Lyon Mackenzie got uh, uh, elected, he would be literally thrown out of the Upper Canada Legislature by what was called the Family Compact. There were a bunch of Tories, bankers, bishops, and, and bureaucrats who ran the country, like they still do. And they, every time Mackenzie got elected, they just threw him out. On the other hand, you had among the farmers um, who kept electing these guys, they said, to hell with this, we're going to pick up arms. They had a more kind of direct action approach. And they said, look, we already, it was like the American Revolution. These people already own their own land, their own farms. Um, my family were living out in what's now Western Ontario, right among the, uh, the Chippewa natives. They were living alongside them way out in the woods. And they were self-governing. And they said, there's no need to have the crown over us. So they took up arms directly. And, and you've got the same tendency now. The people on the bottom tend to look for immediate solutions. The, you know, the, the professional politicians think you can work it out through the system, but everything reached ahead, and, and it, it, uh, they had that kind of temporary meeting of interest, and they acted together. But, again, they, it wasn't coordinated, and it got defeated by the, by the British military. They didn't have the organization and the, and the roots that the American Revolution had. But this time it's very different. We have people who potentially – are educated enough and connected enough, if we acted together, the whole thing would fall tomorrow because we're the majority. And uh, we've learned lessons from the past and, and people's mistakes. So, I mean, I think there's a lot more basis to it now, but um, we have to know our, our real history. And that's why, you know, knowing uh, knowing this, how it didn't work and, and what we need to do now is so important, right? Yeah. It's interesting to me that it was, you said 1837? Was that... Yeah, last time it was tried. Um, it's interesting to me that it's been so long in between. Yeah. Like it, no one has tried it before, or it's just been smothered out each time. You know, before it got any sort well, that of traction. That was in the east. Don't forget Louis Riel. Okay, he, he, he where I'm from in Winnipeg, in 1885, there were two attempted Riel rebellions, uh, 1870, 1885, and they were the Métis. They were the mixed blood English and French settlers and Scots with the Cree and the Ojibwe, created the Métis. And they wanted to govern themselves, whereas Johnny MacDonald, the first prime minister, was a lobbyist and a lawyer for the Canadian That's why they put him in as And they wanted the Rick across the because the Americans were going to cross the So they had to build this railway, and the Métis were in the way. So they fomented the war. Real Independence set up what's now Toba around the railway. And, um, the, you know, there's a, a again, a, they were defeated by the, by the British Army, the Canadian militia. That was the only other attempt to, to have create a republic. So it's been, you know, well over a century since this was last tried, even though a majority of Canadians, like I said, want the idea of a republic. But look at the political parties. It doesn't matter which one they are. They all take an oath of allegiance to Queen Elizabeth and her descendants. They're tied by that oath to be agents of the crown, not the people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. So 
Moving forward, how would, how are you building a republic, and what successes and failures have you encountered? Like, what would that? Yeah, how how are how is it moving forward? Is it making progress? Is it gaining ground? I know you touched on it a little bit there, but it's been up and down a lot. Uh, it's been really encouraged by the COVID police state over the last two years. Our 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 membership went increased over ten times when the COVID measures were brought in. Uh, we've attempted to build assemblies in local communities to start building up the grass, you know, the republic from the grassroots. We are uh, in July. We're convening more of a national convention, and with links, you know, around the world, people in other countries working on the same idea um, of a republic. And so it's it's really um, up and down a lot. But what I find even more encouraging is that the idea is everywhere. And you find that in history, revolutions right up to the point at which things change, people often say, well, look, there's no indication people are changing here, right? That's because we don't see most of the change happens beneath the surface. It happens beneath the conscious mind in people. An idea starts turning around. And then one day it's like the hundredth monkey. Everybody has the idea. Everybody welcomes it in, right? Like 20 years ago, we were the only people talking about genocide in residential schools. Now everybody uses that word, right? You say something and, and you act on something long enough, and and like Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, you set the train of battle. Your enemy always comes around, no matter how big they are. You just keep on your purpose, and it'll change. We're finding that happen. More and more people are talking about, as a matter of fact, it, um, between, um, the mayor of the, uh, a few years ago in Victoria, B.C., said she was disavowing her oath of allegiance to the crown. The, the uh, Black Quebecois MPs have all done that. They don't take the oath, you know. Um, what, uh, you know, the NDP leader, um, I'm sorry, I forget his name. Uh, uh, Jeet Meg Singh or something like that. Yeah, he's a, he's a Sikh fellow. Right. Uh, he said the crown's an anachronism. Jagmeet Singh. Um, he said the crown's an anachronism. But if he's then going to go to the next step and say, okay, now we need a constitutional republic, let's have a convention, have delegates, toss out the crown, they're not doing that because it's like the, the, the native chiefs uh, on the government payroll. They're not going to get rid of the Indian Act because that's their bread and butter, even though it's oppressing their own people. Same with pol politicians in Canada. They're not going to move against that until the tide, they can see the tide is shifting. And it is shifting. I see it everywhere. I speak in a lot of communities, work with a lot of people, and everybody's on board with this idea. But like you said, they lack the confidence to be able to say, okay, now we're going to do it because they're still working. You know, it's like my dad said, he was in the Korean War, and he said, um, as an American, he said, when you're a new soldier in combat, you always think you can fight without getting harmed. So guys are always ducking down to avoid the bullets. And then after a while, you realize to defend the guys next to you, you've got to disregard your personal safety and just fight. And I, I'm, I'm seeing people reach that point now with all the, you know, the truckers convoy and the COVID protests and everything. People have said, enough is enough. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going to let you do this anymore to our people or my children or whoever, right? So I see people reaching that point. And once the people reach there, you know, they're, they're unbeatable as long as they stay at it. And it, it's unfortunate these days people have, um, uh, three-minute expectation, like if, if something can't change in a short period of time, they don't want to bother with it. We need a long view mm -hmm. on this. We've got to realize this is a long-term struggle. Our children are going to be fighting this battle. 
but we got to start it now, right? Yeah, very much so. I like that analogy there with you know the, with people standing up, you know, in the in you know battle, individuals thought that they could fight without getting hurt, and then eventually they get to the point where they know that they have to you know fight for something bigger than themselves and not worry so much about right. you know their own their own situation and i do agree with you i see that in in a lot of places i see it in you know in ottawa we've seen it and in many other places as well you just see in people now you know when someone calls them a conspiracy theorist or they calls them you know whatever yeah. they're like yeah yeah i am and you know and it takes people you know the person that's calling them out they're like kind of like taken aback because before that was people if they were called a conspiracy theorist they try and explain it and you know, a lot of people just say like, no, because they know that it's coming, that people are seeing more and more of this information come out. And what doesn't matter what they call, when I mean, you get called, it doesn't, it really doesn't make a difference. Right. And, and they can beat those people up all they want, but it's coming. And uh, yeah, the tables are turning, I do well, believe. Well, having been the target of a state sponsored smear and blacklisting campaign for <clears throat> over 25 years, I can tell you, um, there's an old saying, uh, I don't care what you call me, just don't spell my name wrong. Because <laughs> you want to attack me? Thanks for the free publicity. Bring it on. That's why, I mean, when the churches first began to go after us for talking about their crimes, I remember um, there was a newsletter at the Carnegie Center in downtown east side of Vancouver, and they were printing all my stuff. The Anglican and the United Churches contacted them and said, this is unfair. We don't think you should print Kevin Annett's stuff. And they, the editor Paul Taylor offered them space to rebut me. And they said, no, 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 we don't want to talk about the issue. We just want to silence Kevin at it. So that's because they don't want it. They don't want to talk about the issue because it condemns them. That's why they've never sued me in 25 years, because they don't want this issue in a court. They don't want this on the public record. They just want to defame and discredit and attack from the shadows, right? That's what people mm -hmm. do when they're involved in a crime. And the government's the same way. They use force and intimidation rather than open debate and exposure. Because they're in the wrong, and they know it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it's, it's a very much the thing. Again, again with today, people don't want to debate things; they just want to want that to you know. One side wants just the problem to just all of a sudden be solved, like that three minute solution you were talking about, and the other part wants everybody censored. And it's like, well, that isn't going to get anything figured out. Well, not in a not in a good way for the people, anyways. Right. So how does the how does the Republic of Canada relate to indigenous people and are they involved in the Republic? Well, it's embodied right in the flag. Like I said, a third of our delegates were indigenous. The flag, for people who don't know, um, it's the uh, three stars, the founding nations, French, English, indigenous. And the blue lines represent what's called the Tura Wampum which was the original treaty signed with between our peoples. And it said that they represent like two, uh, a canoe and a ship going down the river side by side. And the idea was that we would share the land together, not one over another, but inequality, which was the, the indigenous model. That's what Kanata means or Ganata. It was a Haudenosaunee or Iroquois word. Uh, Ganata meant where everyone sits as one around the council fire. In the longhouse, nobody was over anybody else. Everyone had a voice. Everyone was equal. That was their model of democracy, you know. But in Europe, the only model they had was a ruler tells you what to do. Maybe you can vote for the ruler sometimes, but you're still being told what to do because they're all slaves. Um, and so the indigenous people 
are being part of a republic from the beginning. What our model is, if you read in here and on our website, republicofcanada.org, you'll see that we believe in a federation of equal nations. So Canada, Canada is going to be not what you have now, where native people are subordinated to crown authority. We have equal nations. So in the areas like we've already signed a treaty with the Chilcotin people, uh, that's central British Columbia around Cornell, the central kind of area in, in BC. This treaty was signed last month. What it says is we are going to recognize each, each other's nationhood. We're going we're gonna to have mutual treaties and trade and protection. And that way, it's, it's like what Yugoslavia used to be. There are all these nations federated into, into one parliament, one legislature, so that you have that kind of equality. So indigenous people are an integral part of, of Canada. Uh, they gave us the name, the philosophy, but it also comes out of our own traditions in common law in England and other countries that said, look, um, this is really important. In 1649, you remember Cromwell cutting off the head of the King King Charles. There were two acts of Parliament that came in, in in January and March 1649 after they overthrew the King. Because the King had tried to wage a war against his own people to destroy the power of Parliament. And he had the backing of the Catholic Church and foreign powers to do that. So he said, you're a traitor. They tried him. They cut off his head. Then they passed a law that's abolished monarchy for all time in England. And it did away with the House of Lords and the monarchy. And it said anyone who tries to reimpose the monarchy is committing an act of treason against the people. Eleven years later, his son overthrows Parliament, the Puritan Republic, in a military coup. But that wasn't legal. That wasn't lawful. It was a coup. So they create what's called a de facto power, but not a de jure power. The monarchy in England has not been in existence since 1649. The power that rules, pretends to rule over Canada and the whole Commonwealth in England is an illegitimate power. It's never existed. That's why when we say, how do we create the Republic? We've always been sovereign. We've just had our minds confused thinking there's a thing called the British Crown. It's never been, been there. It was lawfully deposed in 1649, and it doesn't have any authority to rule over Canada or anywhere else in the world. Native people recognize that. that that's why they signed the Tour Wampum Treaty. We're going back to that. We're saying we've always been sovereign, we're reestablishing what was created in England and what the native people have inherently, our own sovereign jurisdiction. So, I mean, that's kind of a long answer, but it's really why the indigenous tradition NARS are like that when it comes to self-governance. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, I find I didn't I had no idea about that, that the you're, you're talking about with the, the coup and de facto leaders and stuff. So, like, we have... Or, the, the crown hasn't really been in power or anything back since the 1600s, which means that we don't... It's all an illusion. It is an illusion. It's like a corporation. It's a corporate fiction. Your capitalized name on all the government documents. It's not you at all. It's a corporation created at birth when your parents registered you. And every time you get a government letter, the first thing you say is, is this addressed to me or to the corporation? And they hate it when you ask that because they can't answer it honestly. Right? It usually causes their machine to start sputtering and smoke coming out when you ask that question, right? <laughs> and the same is true about the crown. They say, well, show me the crown. What is it? It's the city of London banking cartel. Elizabeth Windsor is just a woman. She has no authority over us. She's a criminally convicted woman. Um, and so she can be arrested on site, just like the Pope can be or any of these other people. So 
that's coming out of our natural born sovereignty and which was recognized in those acts of parliament in 1649 that have always governed us so you know we have the precedence as a lawyer would say there's all the precedence there uh, it's just a matter of acting on it we have the means it's a matter of the will and the the, the consciousness and that's the first thing we gain back the real awareness of what we're in right and what's an alternative mm. so when you when you talk, we talk about republic it is the united states a republic is that a thing it used to be um, in 1776. The, the original idea is, it's like Christianity, okay? It sounds like a great idea. As a matter of fact, when I got fired by the United Church, I was picketing the head office down on 4th Avenue, Vancouver, and I had a quote from um, uh, George Bernard Shaw, and it said, Christianity sounds like a wonderful idea. Somebody should try it sometime. And uh, the, the same is true about, you know, uh, a republic. It was a beautiful idea, but it was written by slave owners. And uh, half the country split away in the Civil War and said, no, we don't believe all men are created equal. We believe in slavery. And after the Civil War, they, the laws were passed giving corporations the same status as a human being. And it, what it, it gradually corporatized the whole system. So you, you can find, and this has been talked about, Canada, the United States, all these governments are actual corporate entities listed on the stock exchange. Um, that, so it kind of in a big way, it's what happens to an individual when you distinguish between the corporate name and the natural person. There is a natural republic called America that exists among the people. But then there's this corporate fiction that calls itself a government, just like in Canada. We just step out of that, and I work with... Um, Republic Alliance assemblies all over America, because Americans are for, Americans are further down the road. They're already raised with the idea that they're they're not subjects like in Canada, but they're citizens of Republic. They're just reclaiming that. We're creating this idea, you know, among a lot of Canadians for the first time. But it's the same idea. We go back to our natural status of self-governing men and women. That's the highest authority. You know, John Adams, the one of the founding fathers in America, said. America is the first time in history that people govern themselves. There's no sovereign save the people. Okay, sovereign doesn't mean the, a person sitting on a throne, right? Sovereigns being by laws, not We as the individual sovereignty, a republic, but he does it together. Collective sovereignty, no authority higher than us, right? Hmm. Interesting. So. When it comes to sovereignty, when it comes to republic, what is I hear? I keep hearing of this uh, 1776 law and the republic that existed back then, and common law that existed back then, and something happened after changed it to do something to do with a corporation. And I'm curious, do you, have you heard about the 1776 law or and what what that entails? Yeah, you see, there's um, in the last over 10 to 15 years, common law has become a real popular issue. And a lot of people come in and they have their own take on it, their own interpretation. And I think it's kind of like touching the elephant. Uh, you're all sensing a different part of it, right? So, yeah, you can see different things written about all by all these different groups, but they're all referring to the same basic thing. That is, you've got to distinguish between the natural and the artificial, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I, I hear that them t- people talk about the 1776 law and that something had changed after that and that we're going back to that or that's the hope. And on a on a you know a worldwide basis or a global aspect. So, I mean, if it is what I what I think it is, what I've read up on, then it sounds like a great thing. But I don't know enough about it to to say. Um, Dale South governing in, or South governing individuals. I like this. I'm going to say itself. Yeah, self governing individuals. I like this. There's a few. I mean, like you were saying there, there, there is a good. Uh, there is individuals out there that want to be self-governing. Like, I think it's a great idea, but I, I do believe there would be a lot of people that that would be a terrifying situation for them because it isn't, uh, and I guess never grown up. I don't know. When you think of it, you don't forget how we're raised. We're raised in a very, uh, individualized culture. So we always think in terms of me first. Okay. So when we say self-governance, we think of it as simply I'm governing myself in isolation from everybody else. That's not what the meaning is. The meaning of the word is you find identity in yourself, but it's expressed with the people around you in your own assembly. So the way I really govern myself, no one is an island. You can't go off and, and, well, some people do. They try it, you know, go live off on a hill, fine. But if you're going to live in society, you've got to find a way to coexist with other people. And the way you do that, there's got to be an Rousseau talks about this in the social contract. The whole purpose of the book is to say, how do you get a balance between the right of an individual and the needs of the community? Well, the way you do that is through what he calls covenants or agreements, because nobody has any natural authority over anyone else and force by itself doesn't make you right. Okay. So the only way you can get agreement among people is to have a covenant or a contract, if you like. And that's what in an assembly, that's what laws do. People work out how they want to live together, but not me telling you what to do because no one can tell another what to do. That's an indigenous republic way of thinking. No one can tell me what to do. Um, but I'm responsible to the people around me. And together we can work out how we want to live together and keeps it local, cooperative. Frankly, if it's bigger than a few hundred people, it doesn't work. Um, you then get bureaucracy developing. And that's why you mm-hmm. need local assemblies of a few hundred to pass the local laws. And then you have a union of all these assemblies to make a, a nation, right? But it's got to, it, you know, it, it's easy to say I want to govern myself. It's a hard job. It's like working on a farm, okay? Backbreaking labor, you know, because you're committed not only to yourself but to those around you and what's best for the collective as well as as for me. Yeah, I could see some troubles with that. You know, I, I like the idea of it, of the republic it, and working with each other, like the, you know, how you explained it there. But I do, like I, like I mentioned a few times now, like I think it would be terrifying for some individuals just like working yeah. on a farm. It's like people, when they get to a farm, they think their idea is great. Then they get out there, yeah. and it's like, well, it's not like the movies, right. and it isn't like the sitcoms. It's a lot of work. No. No. Well, it's so like it's, life uh, is like that. Interesting. When you, when you have children, you learn that too, right? Like I had an ideal view of what it, I always wanted kids, right? I just love them so much. And then when I had my two daughters, I mean, wow. This is a major day-by-day job and responsibility because these little lives are dependent on you, right? And I was—I always said uh, to others when I talked about it in sermons or public talks or whatever, I learned so much from my own children. They were teaching me all the time, you know, through their innocence and 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 just how in each of us is born in every generation new possibilities and endless possibilities, right? And and. Children teach us that, but we have to take that 
the, the, the responsibility of allowing them to think and act for themselves seriously. You don't punish. You don't, you know, tell children what to think. You let them discover for themselves while giving an example by your life of a way to be. You know, it's not something taught but lived together and shown. And I think any good parent knows that, right? But take that model and put it into the whole society. we got to model with each other how we want to be together. We, you know, politicians should have to live under the laws they pass. Because if the politicians had to abide by the laws they pass, they wouldn't pass most of these laws, right? It's yeah. we who are the people who have to bear the responsibility. And, you know, I, I had a friend, uh, he worked as a chauffeur on Parliament Hill, and he's published a book about it. Um, and uh, he actually is under a lawsuit right, right now but um, for doing it because he named names. <laughs> but he said he if people knew how their tax money spent in Ottawa, they would immediately boycott all federal taxes, which they should do anyway. We're telling people to do that, keep the money in the community. He said not only did he have to take children and hookers and drugs and alcohol to these MPs in his car, and that's why he quit eventually, but he had to sit outside Parliament with the car running all day at the expense of $6,000 a day to the taxpayer so that a member of Parliament or a cabinet minister didn't have to wait 10 minutes for the car to come up and pick him up. I mean, that's the level of corruption that, you know, people say, oh, you're going to pay taxes. Why? To fund those parasites? No. Pull the plug on them financially. That's the best thing we can do, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that 110%. I like what you said there about the, about the children is not to teach them what to think, but, you know, more so how to think and giving them an example right. by, you know, one's own life. I think that's a, you know, a, a big a big thing that, you know, is helpful. I mean, I'm not a parent, but one day I'd like to be in, and, uh, I can only hope and pray that that's how I go about it. Um, okay. So you mentioned China in, uh, previously in, in, in having something to do with, you know, the situation that we're in now, how does that all factor in? Well, I think China is the biggest threat in, in Canada to what we're doing. It's not the Trudeau government who are just puppets of Beijing more and more, or the Tories. Don't forget, it was the Tories who brought in the Foreign Investment Protection Act. Trudeau just enacted it. Both the Liberals and the Tories and the NDP, they all go along with this stuff. Foreign Investment Protection Act allows China to station troops here. It allows them to buy up the whole economy. So it's handed the country over. And because of that, it's like we shouldn't be looking at the Ukraine. The Ukrainian conflict was fomented by China to get Russia and America to attack each other so that China can pick up all the pieces, right? They need the resources and the control of North America. Um, and so China has no tradition of common law, democracy, self-governance. It's just foreign to their whole culture and way of thinking. They have a Mandarin Confucian notion. And in the Confucian schooling, the teacher told you everything. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to people who were uh, teaching, uh, they were ESL teachers in Nanaimo, and they were, they caught Chinese students plagiarizing in tests. And they didn't think it was plagiarizing because they were taught in China that there's this knowledge passed on to you by the expert and you just regurgitate it back. There's not that Socratic tradition of question, answer, um, you know, that um, knowledge arises through a process of people debating and looking at different ideas. It's a more, it's a hierarchical system, one emperor in charge. And that's why the corporatocracy, this global corporation is looking to China because they've got a perfect system politically to, to bring in this corporate dictatorship in the world. So they're the biggest threat. And that's why all of our assemblies on Vancouver Island 
on Vancouver Island were wiped out so quickly because China's moving in there in a big way, like all over the West Coast. And so I would say, yeah, we have to, um, you know, it's not against an ethnic group because a lot of Canadian Chinese are against this invasion going on um, by by mainland China. And yeah, it isn't you know, we recognize Chinese, it's more so CCP, right? Well, again, these terms, I mean, it's, it's, it's really the Communist Party of China is the, sh uh, is the window dressing behind which the corporatocracy is acting. And, um, you know, it's, it's like puppet, you know, who's the puppet master? You always got to find out where the strings <laughs> be, right? But, but I mean, um, essentially, wherever we set up these republics in Chinese territory, boom, they're wiped out. So it shows that even if you don't agree politically with what we're doing, patriots need to unite. And I say this to Americans all the time. The Democrats and re Republicans have to stop fighting each other and unite because they're doing exactly what China wants. They're ripping the country apart. I frankly think both parties are being funded by China to do that. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that China reads Sun Tzu. They, Sun Tzu, the art of war, get your enemies to fight each other and destroy each other. Don't attack them directly. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what China's doing in the Ukraine, in America, in Canada. So we need to unite on a new foundation with people saying all Canadians need to unite in a republic that gets rid of these genocidal traditions, these puppet governments, these foreign invaders take back our nation, and we'd have the majority behind us. The problem is we can't get the message out because the corporate media is totally controlled. The alternative media is scared often to take on this stuff, and it's also heavily influenced um, we found out actually in America, some of the alternative media networks were being funded openly by, by uh, uh, there's a thing called the Pew Foundation. It's, it's run by Sunoco, Sun Oil Company. They control a lot of the environmental groups and the alternative media that report these stories. The oil companies create the, the, the shell uh, foundations that fund all of these so-called alternative groups. So you gotta look for where the money comes from in any group you know, that says they're alternative because are they really, right? I often wonder why none of our stuff was ever reported in the alternative media. You know, whether people simply were afraid to take on the Catholic Church or are they getting money from them? Like, who knows, right? Yeah, it is kind of a difficult one to know. Hmm. And that's a lot of interesting stuff. There's a lot of stuff there to, you know, to think yeah. about, to, to ponder. Uh, we're coming up here on our time with, for the hour show, would, would you like to leave the audience with for any final thoughts or information? Well, we're uh, setting up district assemblies now. We have enough assemblies, like in southern, southwestern Ontario, we have a whole district assembly now. It requires that people take responsibility on the ground to set up, if there's only a few of you, take out citizenship, form a cell in your community, and then the cells unite into assemblies. Write to us, uh, Republic National Council at protonmail.com. Most importantly, go to republicofkanata.org uh, and uh, study and contact us. Listen on Sundays to our show, uh, which I know you folks post. Uh, Sunday mm -hmm. at uh, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, bbsradio.com slash who we stand is the voice of the Republic. And just get involved. Get the book, Case for Kanata. And uh, carry it on in your communities because it's in your communities where you're going to build up the republic. Right on, right on. Before we go, I got one more question for you, and that is: on July 24th, if my memory serves me right, is the Pope still coming? 
As far as we know, we, we have sources in the Catholic Church and along the highway to Tears who saying, yeah, he, he's still planning on going. He's, there's going to be a day where he's, quote, at rest. That's the official line, but he's going to be going out to Prince Rupert to meet the Chinese at that point because the bank is underwriting finance a lot of these activities. So, but through the money in the world laundered through the bank and the bank of Benevolence in Geneva that they, they control. So they were protests, the pro hope campaign. You can follow it. Uh, of Canada.org under breaking news to stay there. Very interesting. I'm excited to see what, uh, what comes of that. All right, my friend, that wraps us up for, for the evening. Thank you very much for joining us again this evening. And like you were saying, Kevin, you are on, uh, our show, not TV as well on, uh, on Sunday evenings at the, the 3 PM Pacific and then six Eastern. And, um, we've had you on multiple times now and I'm sure we'll have you again. I hope. I sh- well, as a matter of fact, I should do a little plug. We're starting a uh, regular TV show on your network. It's going to be called Canada Rising, or Canada Rising, and uh, it's it's going to be um, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, five PM, starting on hopefully July first. Very cool, very cool. Yeah. There you have it, folks. There's lots to look forward to. If this is something that you're interested in, in the in the Republic, in the in Canada, and all the work that Kevin is doing, and uh, in Not TV itself, you can find it all there. Um, 